Wrestling the Gospel for Earth Podcast. Welcome to the Gospel for Planet Earth podcast. I'm your host, Carl Gessler, and in the studio with me today, again, making his semi-annual appearance, is my brother, Ricky Gessler. Welcome back to the podcast, Ricky. Thank you, sir. For the month of January, at least, we are focusing on the subject of evangelism, and if you didn't catch last week's podcast with Kelsey Garcia sharing her testimony, I encourage you, you need to check that out, and you probably need to share it with somebody, because this is an epic story really, of someone who experienced the great depths of evil and also experienced the the incomparable resurrection of Jesus in her life. And a big part of her story is that someone was actively doing evangelism. So that's part of our takeaway from yes, from last week. So I encourage you to, uh, to check that out. But we are uh, still going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to explore how to apply that to the subject of evangelism. So, Ricky, when someone says to you that you need to share the gospel, what is it that you think they are telling you you need to do? What what do you need to share? Uh, well, my mind goes to a practical context, like where you work uh, and the people that you work with. And I think people usually mean that you're supposed to share with those people that you work with what you believe and particularly um, how they can get saved. Right. That's soteriology, the way we get saved. We're going to learn a little bit more about that word later on. When we talk about sharing the gospel, we usually are referring to something that we believe we get out of the Apostle Paul's writings, but we very rarely use the actual gospels, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to share the gospel. Basically, we just take a fact from those stories. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, and now we use Paul's uh, supposed theology of uh, how we get saved Mm -hmm. as the gospel. But the Gospels are called the Gospels for a reason. And if someone says you need to share the Gospel, and as a response to that, I took the Gospel of Luke and handed it to somebody and said, here, read this, I think a lot of people would say that that's not sharing the Gospel, but literally it is. We call that the Gospels. There's a good reason we call them the Gospels, because that's what Luke believes he is sharing, is the Gospel, which is why we call it the Gospel according to Luke. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're going to do Luke 21 again. We did we uh, studied this a little bit a couple weeks ago when Bracken Kirkland was on the uh, program, but we're going to lo- visit it again today uh, from another angle and ask how can this help us when we share the gospel. Luke chapter 21, starting in chapter 20, verse 45. As all the people listened to him, he said to the disciples, Watch out for the scribes who like to go about in long robes and enjoy being greeted in the marketplace, sitting in the best seats in the synagogues, and taking the top table at dinners. They devour widows' houses and make long prayers without meaning them. Their judgment will be all the more severe. He looked up and saw rich people putting their contributions into the temple treasury. He also saw an impoverished widow putting in two tiny copper coins. I'm telling you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all of them. They all contributed into the collection out of their plenty, but she contributed out of her poverty and gave her whole livelihood. 
Some people were talking about the temple, saying how wonderful it was decorated, with all its beautiful stones and dedicated gifts. Yes, Jesus said, but the days will come when everything you see will be torn down. Not one stone will be left standing on another. Teacher, they asked him, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that it's all about to take place? Watch out that nobody deceives you, said Jesus. Yes, lots of people will come, using my name, saying, I'm the one, and the time has come. Don't follow them. When you hear about wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. These things have to happen first, but the end won't come at once. One nation will rise against another, he went on, and one kingdom against another. There will be huge earthquakes, famines, and plagues in various places, terrifying omens and great signs from heaven. Before all this happens, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. They will drag you before kings and governors because of my name. That will become an opportunity for you to tell your story. So settle it in your hearts not to work out beforehand what tale to tell. I'll give you a mouth of wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will kill some of you. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but no hair of your head will be lost. The way to keep your lives is to be patient. But, continued Jesus, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that her time of desolation has arrived. Then people in Judea should run off to the hills. People in Jerusalem itself should get out as fast as they can. And people in the countryside shouldn't go back into the city. Those will be the days of severe judgment, which will fulfill all the biblical warnings. Woe betide pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. There's going to be huge distress on the earth and divine anger against this people. The hungry sword will eat them up. They'll be taken off as prisoners to every nation, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the pagans until the times of the pagans are done. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On earth, the nations will be in distress and confusion because of the roaring and swelling of the sea and its waves. People will faint from fear and from imagining all that's going to happen to the world. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great majesty. When all these things start to happen, stand up and lift up your heads, because the time has come for you to be redeemed. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are well into leaf, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is upon you. In the same way, when you see all these things happen, you will know that God's kingdom is upon you. I'm telling you the truth. This generation won't be gone before all this happens. Heaven and earth may disappear, but these words of mine won't disappear. So watch out for yourselves, said Jesus, that your hearts may not grow heavy with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. It will come, you see, on everyone who lives on the face of the earth. Keep awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that will happen and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus was teaching in the temple by day, but at night he went out and stayed in the place called the Mount of Olives. And from early morning, all the people flocked to him in the temple to hear him. So you're in a coffee shop and you're talking to somebody and you feel you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, and you go to this particular part of the gospel, Luke 21, that we just read. 
how how does this relate to the guy in the coffee shop that you're talking to? How does this relate to the gospel being shared with that person? That's a good question because it really depends on who I'm talking to. I think generally it seems like a weird thing to go to this seemingly obscure passage about the destruction of Jerusalem. We talked about this in a previous podcast that this isn't about the end of the world. This is about Jesus's prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD. So why would I go to this passage when I'm talking to someone in a coffee shop about about their need to follow Jesus? Yeah, so if it has a specific place in a historical story, how is it different from, say, um, the the uh, revolution of Bar Kokhba later in like 100-something? Yeah, how does it apply to me? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, it could matter to somebody if they grew up in the church and if they grew up in a world— uh, in a Christian world that taught about the rapture, about the the world being near the end, and uh, you know Armageddon's right around the corner, and unless you're right with Jesus, then there's this horrible fate that awaits you. Um, you know, if you grew up in that context, then and that was your impression of Christianity. If you were kind of jaded about that and you thought it was silly and stupid, I think I might go to this passage and explain to you that that's not what it meant. You know, that there's some there's a there is a very historically relevant meaning to what Jesus was saying, that Jesus wasn't some crazy end-of-the-world prophet that, uh, you know, like the other crazy people we've seen on street corners, you know, claiming that the world is going to end. He had a very good reason to say what he said, and he was actually validated when when uh, Jerusalem fell as a prophet. Um, but that's not likely where I would end up going with anybody. I don't think I would pull out Luke 21 and say, oh, let's talk about this. But it is part of the gospel, uh, because we're talking about Luke's gospel, and Luke didn't give us four main points or the uh, you know the four spiritual laws or whatever. He gave us 24 chapters of a story about Jesus bringing Israel's story to its climax, and this is an important part of that story. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, verses 25 through 27 where uh, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. On earth, the nations will be in distress and confusion because of the roaring and swelling of the sea and its waves. Uh, and he talks about the Son of Man coming on a cloud. Um, that sounds pretty dramatic. It kind of sounds like um, the Left Behind series that was made back in like the early 2000s, where all kinds of crazy phenomenon ha- phenomena happen at once. Um, that's kind of what people picture when they think of the end of the world. Yeah, they do, because we have a tradition of taking this extremely literally, which is really just, when it comes to trying to understand what Jesus was saying, it's not a natural way to understand Jesus's language here. It's very obviously picture language. I mean, Jesus also will tell the uh, the the priests as they condemn him that you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. And he talked to those priests about that. And there's no story that we know of where the priests actually saw Jesus floating on a cloud after he was crucified. This is uh, picture language about vindication and about radical earth-shattering events. So we we say things like earth-shattering events, like 9-11 was uh, turned the world upside down. Or we say uh, that at Bunker Hill, or not Bunker Hill, we say um, in Lexington and Concord that there was a shot heard around the world. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there wasn't a shot heard around the world, but the fact that a gun shot happened and the American Revolution began was something that the whole world would be affected by. And that's the kind of language Jesus is using. He's saying, like, the world as you know it 
is going to be shaken to its core. Because mm-hmm. I remember in maybe it was 2011 or 12 when there was a tsunami that that uh, hit Japan and it was well televised. People were able to get really um, dramatic footage of waves overtaking large areas of land. Uh, and even earlier in like 2000, I guess it was 2007, 2008, when a tsunami wiped out a large part of Sri Lanka, the language that you heard from people was, well, we knew this was going to happen. And uh, it makes sense that all these nations that are not Christian nations would be wiped away by exactly what Jesus describes here, uh, the roaring and swelling of the sea and its waves. I I kind of had trouble with that because, you know, we also had Hurricane Katrina here and uh, and we consider ourselves a Christian nation. It doesn't really seem to line up exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were saying like people said this was a sign of the times. Right. And these unchristian peoples got what was coming to them. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, just a disturbing way to look at it, period. But it is natural in the culture that we that many people have grown up in to think that way. But would the disciples be looking for a literal roaring and swelling of the sea and the waves? No, I don't think the disciples would be looking for that because they were used to this uh, this pictorial language. They, I mean, the prophets are full of this stuff, and especially the book of Daniel and talking about the, the coming of the Son of Man because Daniel has a vision about... Uh, monsters coming up out of the sea and you know one uh about a mountain also that uh, or a statue i should say a statue of all the nations kind of put together on top of each other with a head of gold and uh you know uh, feet of iron and clay and then the stone that smashes it to pieces and uh, that stone grows and becomes a big mountain and replaces the kingdoms of the world they you know this is understood to be prophetic picture language and jesus People, the first thing that they thought about him uh, is that he's a prophet. That's probably the most universal conclusion about who Jesus is. He's a prophet, and he's using prophetic language to describe big events. So uh, the context is is different from what we are used to hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, then going back to the coffee shop, talking to this person about the gospel, where where does this chapter actually fit in? I think it fits in in a number of ways. Uh, one is that Jesus is the Messiah, and we are not used to thinking about the Messiah in a specific term. Like we say things like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is King, and they're all the same thing to us. They're just titles of majesty or glory or something like that. But a Messiah was one that was going to take the nation of Israel where it needed to go. So at one point in Israel's history, Judas Maccabeus, is also known as Judas the Hammer, is seen as... Uh, a messiah, at least a messianic figure, mm-hmm. um, possibly the messiah, because he he stood up to oppressive pagan nations and delivered Israel from her enemies and restored worship in the temple. He he took broken Israel up on his back. He was willing to lead it, you know, to be at the head of the charge, uh, willing to take the arrows and um, to bring her where she needed to go. Happy Hanukkah, everybody! I think we're a little late for that. Well, but it's these. Isn't that the celebration of of uh, that exact event? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. But that was like, this is in January, and that was December. Yeah. Okay. Right. Happy late Hanukkah. <laughs> Happy understanding Hanukkah a little better day. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, as the Messiah, Jesus is going to take Israel where she needed to go, but first he's going to explain to her and what he's doing here in Luke twenty-one. You say he sees it. He's explaining to her where she is going, which is to disaster. Uh, Jesus is saying that the way 
that you have been going, um, you're bringing Rome's wrath down upon yourself. Like you are, uh, you are not pleasing to God by your um, hypocrisy and oppression of the poor, uh, but you're also foolish in that you are stirring up a fight with Rome, and that Rome's much bigger than you, and they're going to crush you. And yes, yeah, so I know you're hoping for God to validate your movement and give you uh, unlikely military victories as he has in the past, especially with like the Maccabean revolt and such. Uh, but he's saying, but that's not what God's doing right now. He's doing a new thing, and it's through me. And so he's predicting the destruction of the nation, but he's also predicting his own destruction because he is going to take Israel's fate upon himself. Hmm. And um, I could use this to point to people's own destruction. You know, we live our lives justifying our decisions, and uh, we live our lives uh, ignoring our faults as much as we can, uh, you know, wanting to affirm ourselves because uh, maybe someone put us down, maybe we didn't get the affirmation we needed as a child, but we're also just naturally insecure because... We aren't perfect. We aren't even really good. We're mostly selfish, mm-hmm. and uh, but we don't have a we don't have hope after admitting that of going forward. It just seems like condemnation. Uh, so we we present ourselves as being all right. We present ourselves as being pretty good, and meanwhile, our lives are actually headed for emptiness. They're headed for destruction. We're maybe developing very unhealthy attitudes and. Uh, relationships and life habits, and uh, we're headed for destruction. And we need to know the Messiah who comes down to share in our pain, to take the chaos that we've created, and to take the responsibility for bringing order to that on himself. And to lead us into the same sort of obedience that Christ needed in order to bring about these promises that you're talking about. How do you mean? In that, Well, you're talking about that person who who thinks, or those of us who, th- who feel we're, we're pretty good. Yeah, we're not incredibly great, but we're, we're keeping it together. We're not terrible people. In contrast to that is, is not just an attitude of, boy, I'm pretty low. Uh, boy, I'm really not all that great. But recognizing that God has called us into the same obedience that Christ has, toward, that Jesus had toward the Father. Right. Uh, in order to actually be representatives of God in the world. Yeah, because the vocation of the human race was to represent God to the world. Israel is kind of the prototype of the whole human race. I think mm-hmm. one rabbi was quoted as saying that, that Israel is just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> that they're like the human race concentrated, and they are broken. God had called them to be the solution to the problem of Adam, but they also were the problem of Adam. They were bringing chaos, and that was why the Maccabean revolt failed to be a messianic movement, was because after they drove out the pagan nations— uh, and reestablish worship in the temple, they turned out to be a corrupt dynasty themselves. And so Israel was left going, okay, so this still isn't the kingdom of God on earth that we've been waiting for. There must be someone, something else in the future. Yeah, so as human beings, we have this vocation to bring God's wise order into the world. And when people say that we're failing at it, that's a devastating thing, and we don't want to hear that unless there is hope to be found And I think that, especially because Luke 21 is just part of the gospel, it's in the the journey of the gospel, we can look at Luke 21 and say, Jesus sees the destruction, he sees the darkness, he sees the devastation of our lives, but he's also making a way through that sea 
and out the other side, which is exactly the Exodus language that the Israelite people would have used. Kind of sounds like baptism a little bit. A little bit, because that is what baptism is. Yep. (laughs) So I was at the rescue, the local rescue mission the other day, and I was challenging the the folks there. Um, I asked them how many of them were saved, and probably at least maybe 40% of the room raised their hands. And I challenged them on that, saying, you know, what have you been saved from? And uh, a lot of people got offended. Uh, they The whole room started getting antsy. Some people kind of la- laughed, I think, just because they enjoyed seeing other people squirm. But <laughs> but there was definitely this grumbling and like, oh, I'm saved. What do you think I'm ta- talking about? Uh, you know, they were insulted that someone would question their salvation. And it goes against the the assurance that's offered to them frequently that, that once you've said this prayer, everything's sort of taken care of. Right. Once you have accepted this soteriology, this system of salvation— you are uh, you're good to go, mm-hmm. and you're saved from the bad afterlife. And uh, what I was trying to convey to these folks was that Jesus came to save us from the power of sin. And if you're at a rescue mission, it's highly unlikely. And I did I did make it clear that that there may be a season for us to be in a rescue mission. You know, maybe we just got saved. We need this time. We're loving people to be around us to support us to help us. Uh, work through issues, and you know, it, there's. I'm not saying that you should never be at a rescue mission. Praise God for rescue missions, mm-hmm. but it's likely if you are at a rescue mission that you are not yet saved because you still need rescuing. And I said, once you are rescued by Jesus, you quickly become a rescuer. Now, all of our lives, we are being sanctified, and so there is a sense that we are still being saved as we are going. That's very true, but there's a radical shift that happens when uh, in us when the Holy Spirit comes inside, and we know that we have the power to be free from sin. Mm-hmm. We just have to work through some issues in that process. But it is a it's a change that's going from death to life when you are saved, right? Uh, because the power of Jesus that has overcome sin has entered into your body and has changed you. But uh, what I wanted to bring out from that is just that. People are offended. Humans, we, I am offended when someone points out my failings. Mm -hmm. And the only way through that is to recognize that Jesus, while pointing out the failings, was willing to take the consequences of our failings on himself in order to bring us through the dark night into the day that he he was bringing into the world. He was bringing the new day of God's creation, the new dawn, And that's why Paul also says in his uh, letters to the church, he says, we are not nighttime people, we are daytime people. We have Mm -hmm. passed through the darkness and into the light. And, you know, this reference to the Son of Man comes from uh, the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is all about Israel passing through this dark night where monsters are threatening her, and it looks like it's all over, and yet God vindicates her in the end. And Jesus is saying, it's going to look like that for the Son of Man, for himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to look like he's a failure. A crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah, according to Jewish thinking. They had a number of them. Yes, they did. They did. They had uh, many people. um, Judas Maccabeus was well-known because he was successful, but there are many people who attempted to revolt against uh, overwhelming odds of pagan overlords, and they got crucified for it. And Jesus gets crucified as a brigand. Uh, and so he looks like a failure. 
And Which is why the resurrection is so important. It is. And it's why Jesus says that you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. Again, this isn't about the rapture. This isn't about Jesus literally floating down on like his flying carpet cloud and then pulling us all up to join him on the cloud. What he's saying is God is going to vindicate me as the Messiah. And that was what happened in the resurrection, which Mm -hmm. is also why he will say to the chief priests, you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. When he was resurrected and the church could not be stamped out, they saw that Jesus was the Messiah. Hmm. Uh, at least the evidence was there, even if they never acknowledged it. You know, when uh, when when Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, and especially when the temple was destroyed, it was uh, a vindication of Jesus because this is what he said would happen, and because it broke the back of of, of the Israelite nation. They still had the chutzpah. And I think that would be the appropriate word to use there. <laughs> They still had the chutzpah to try one more time for a, an armed revolt that failed after 70 AD. And after that, pretty much the, the nation moved into separating politics and religion. And, and you know, uh, it's a kingdom, uh, another worldly type of kingdom. You know, mm-hmm. they they just lost their will for that. And that's because they missed the boat. Right. And, you know? and they turned inward to all kinds of questions of what does it actually mean to be a Jew because they lost a very large part of their vision of themselves. Right. And it's still, while they're, they're somewhat, uh, the nation of Israel as a whole, I would say, is still in a bit of a wandering wilderness trying to get that identity back because it's an identity that is found in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this uh, puts a little more context in a very familiar passage about how if you believe, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Mm-hmm. Puts a little more in there than just um, than trying to believe a religious fact. Yeah. So going back to the coffee shop, this sounds very complex, and it is. I mean, Jesus is not as simple as we wish him to be in our oversimplified Western context mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, but the truth is, oversimplification does not scratch where it itches. It doesn't give the life that the world needs. Uh, but... For most of most of the time, when we are sharing the gospel with people in public, they have very busy, complicated lives as well. They've got things that are really bothering them. They've got hurts and wounds. And yeah, they can't handle like a deep theological study yet. So we're going to need to give them shorthand. And that's an important thing to know. But we can't stop there. For a discipleship to happen, which Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. For a discipleship to happen, we do need also the Bible studies that are that are intense and ask the hard questions that dig deep. And it's when we know the gospel uh, from first principles in a very rich, deep way, then we can give proper, potent shorthand when we're sharing the gospel in public, rather than kind of sloppy. Uh, and sloppy is better than nothing. Sure, yeah. Uh, we're going to hear Teresa McMillan in a minute on our podcast in an interview and she will share a little bit about that like the sloppiest Jesus loves you is better than nothing and God can use that he uses uh, broken people and he uses imperfect people who are stumbling around trying to serve him the most important thing is that you love Jesus and you love the person you're talking to and yet it's a reasonable goal to understand the gospel as well as the writers of the gospel did right and it's it's if you love the people you are trying to reach it's as important to study theology as it is to study a recipe if you're cooking for someone. If you're cooking for someone you love, 
and you study the recipe so that you make it well, and they they will enjoy the richness of that food. Uh, and you can love someone and cook for them too, but if you don't really study what you're doing, you might poison them. <laughs> you know, and that's a that's a a mistake we don't want to make. I think the uh, the deeper understanding, like you say, a sort of sloppy presentation of the gospel can definitely be used by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but to understand it well, I think, is especially helpful in ministering to those who have spent a lot of time in the church mm-hmm. and still don't quite understand the gospel or have been confused by the explanation they've frequently heard. So with all my studying, and I've done a lot over the past 10 years, I still, the majority of the time when I share the gospel, I feel sloppy and awkward and um, but I'm sure it's better than I know. Uh, and it's, I feel the same way, though, when I perform music. Pretty much everything I do, I see all the flaws in it. I feel that way as a teacher. Yeah, and that's natural. So we shouldn't beat ourselves up. We shouldn't wait until we know all the answers to share the gospel. As a matter of fact, the quickest way to learn is to start sharing. Uh, they say that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And uh, so don't wait. Uh, get out there and begin to tell people about Jesus, but I think we just have to do it humbly so that when people challenge us and we don't know the answers, we can say, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> That's awfully relieving. And it's it's what love does, because mm-hmm. love is honest, and love is humble, and love cares about the truth more than it cares about proving that it's right. Mm-hmm. That sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> it cares about the truth rather than validating myself. Right. There you go. So for the second part of today's podcast, we're going to hear from a friend of ours, Teresa McMillan, and this woman really is a hero of the faith. We actually named our fifth child after her, and uh, we were happy to do so. And so she's going to share with us about her calling to go to all the nations. And when she says all the nations, she literally means all the nations, which is a lot. And she's been to 49 already. So this is a wealth of wisdom and experience, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thanks for being with me, Thanks for having me. All right, well, we're here with Teresa McMillan, and we are happy to catch you in your busy life. Thus, Teresa is an inspiration to our family. And our little girl, Teresa, was named after you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to name all of our children out of, uh, from people that we want to them to emulate. We are thankful for your testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met Teresa, I don't know how long ago it was now. It was 2006, the beginning of 2006, I think. So almost 13 years. Yeah. And I remember we were my brothers and I were leading worship at a youth group and my sisters and actually my, she wasn't my wife then, but yeah. we weren't even dating then. But my wife was there too. And uh, my sister Pamela really connected with you. Yes. And she was drawn to you in her heart and uh, believed that at one point she would be doing missions with you. Which yes. She ended up doing the world race. And you are now um, part of the world race yourself. Yes. You know, can you just give us five, you know, the five cent tour of uh, the world race? Yes. The world race is an 11 country and 11 month missions trip where we take 21 to 35 year olds to different countries. And so one squad will be about 40, maybe 50 people will arrive in countries split up into seven or, you know, six different ministries that are prearranged and work with long-term missionaries, even though we're only coming with a short-term focus. It's a mission that goes both both directions. You're going out to serve in the nations, but you're also, it's kind of a, 
intense discipleship program, isn't it? Yes, it's pretty much dual focus. And so we do care about the participant, about them growing closer to the Lord and knowing Him and growing in their faith and awareness of spiritual gifts and everything like that. At the same time, we're teaching them how to minister alongside of the people yeah. of the nation. It's yeah. an intense program. I yes. know from my sister, yeah. it's not, you're ripped out of your comfort zone 11 times <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in one year. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. And it's major. I mean, it's going from various continents in 11 months. That's yep. a lot. I It's over, overwhelming to think about. But, yes. uh, so you, I know you say your, your calling is to all the nations. Yes. Actually, interestingly, shortly after we heard that, I mean, it was a couple of years after we heard that, uh, as the Lord was putting ministry in our hearts, we felt mm -hmm. like in a similar way, we were called to all the cities wow. of the United States, which I, I would tell people that is, uh, we'll go to all the c cities until God says stop, mm -hmm. but he hasn't. <laughs> so That's we keep so going. Good. Uh, yeah. So um, you've been an inspiration to us there as well, but your life has not always been this way. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about where you come from and, yes. and uh, how the Lord has brought you to this place? Yeah. So I was raised going to church. We were raised in a Catholic family. So I went to church on Friday, Sunday. I heard the message. Um, I heard people pray. I had the mass memorized, but it never sunk in what I was doing. For me, it was just like, yes, I could recite the mass, but I never thought about God or knew God personally. And hmm. so that happened for 14 years. And then my parents were divorced when I was 14. Hmm. Um, and then I decided to leave home. I'm kind of all or nothing. You'll see that in my, the latter part of my testimony. Okay. But uh, so, um, I went hard into darkness, basically, and started dating drug dealers and stealing, um, just depressed, even wanted to commit suicide one time at mm. eight when I was 18. And then when I was 19, someone gave me a letter and it said, Dear friend, I love you. I miss you. I saw you go to sleep last night. Love, Jesus. And that was like a track, they're called. Um, God used that piece of paper, I don't even know who gave it to me, to let me know that I could be close to him. So I started going to a church in Asheville, and I went for three years and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I also went to clubs on Saturday night, mm. had boyfriends, all kinds of... And I wasn't even trying to live a dual life. I just thought that's what you do. Mm. You know, you go to the club on Saturday, you go to church on Sunday, and both were fine. Okay. And finally, when I was 22, someone had the boldness to share the gospel with me. And they said, hey, Teresa, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, do you know for sure if you died, if you'd go to heaven? And I said, oh, yeah, I'd go to heaven. And he was like, why? I said, oh, I've been a good person. And then his name is Tim Brown. He shared the gospel with me. And I accepted Christ that night. Can you be a little specific as to, um, you know, he shared the gospel with you. What, what did that sound like? Yeah. Well, what he did was he said, do you have a Bible? And I did because when I was 19, my dad got me a Bible when he started seeing me change. Mm. And so I had a Bible. I don't think I ever read it. Maybe Psalm 23, you know? Um, but so he began to take me verse by verse through the Bible. Well, I didn't even know how to find, this was over the telephone, so I didn't know how to find some of the verses, hmm. like 1 John five thirteen, that these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. It mattered to you more, like he could have just said those things, but it, did it matter yes. more to you because he said, read it here? Yes. Okay. And that's what I love even in evangelism now is actually taking people to scripture and having them read it for themselves because the word of God hmm. is so powerful. And that's what he did. So he showed me 
John 3 with Nicodemus being born again. I had never heard of that story. Um, And he went through verse by verse through the Bible and explained the gospel thoroughly about how it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I literally thought if you're a good person, then you you know, can be with God. And good person is a very vague term. Oh, especially. Because the life I was living, it's like, clearly I wasn't a good person, but I thought that was the answer. Right. Okay. So I accepted Christ over the phone. I said, yes, Jesus. He explained lordship to you. I said, yes, Jesus, I want to make you lord of my life. Please forgive me of my sin. I, I believed I was born again at that moment. And so I prayed that. I wrote a letter to God. It was October 31st, 2000. And I told God in that letter, I want to learn about you and tell about you the rest of my life. Mm. So even on the first day of salvation, I knew I wanted to tell people about it. And I think that's the power of the gospel. When you know it's good, when you taste and see that God is good and you know it's good news, then Mm -hmm. you can't wait to give it away. Right. If you write a letter to God like that, he generally answers, okay. Yes. <laughs> Good <yeah>. idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was, uh, when did you start doing mission work? So, um, right, saved... And using that liberally, I mean, right. all evangelism is mission work. But, exactly. Yeah. So I was in nursing school at the time. So I decided to finish nursing school. But even as a new Christian, I was wanting to, I became president of the the nursing school class. And I was like, yeah, we're going to reach out and we're going to go serve at the homeless shelter in Asheville. Um, so even as a brand new Christian, I was just doing works of like evangelism or service in North Carolina, even though I didn't know how to exactly share the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would watch Tim Brown. He would take me evangelizing downtown Asheville and I'd watch him and be like, wow, I really want to do that one day. So I completed nursing school And then I flew to Australia and did um, a discipleship training school with YWAM. Mm. So at first I thought, like before I was a Christian, I thought it'd be really cool to be like a nurse without borders. Then when I became a Christian, I thought it'd be cool to do something like mercy ships. But then I heard about discipleship training school and decided to do that. Mm. And how did that affect your walk with the Lord, the discipleship training school? I was like a sponge. Like I just soaked up everything they taught. I didn't know you could hear God's voice. Hmm. That was a big game changer for me. I had read the Bible three times by that point. I'd been saved about a year and a half. And somehow I didn't pick up on that God was speaking since creation, Hmm. you know, and that he spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the son. He spoke through the Holy Spirit. So that was a game changer. Um, The power of the Holy Spirit was another game changer. Like, Mm -hmm asking God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit to help me be bold or whatever. They taught us how to share the gospel. I saw my first person accept Christ. Literally everything. They taught us how to study the Bible. It's like all areas were covered. Okay. Yeah. So you were really equipped from that experience. Yes. And did you start going to the, to the nations at that point? Yeah. I went to Fiji. That was my first place I went um, to lead discipleship training schools or staff them. Mm-hmm. Um, two schools back-to-back in Fiji. Okay, so you've been to 49 nations. Yes. What are the first five that stand out to you? Um, I'd have to say Israel. I cannot wait to go back to. Love that time. And your sister came to that one with me. Yeah. Iraq is my favorite country ever, and your sister also came to that one. So, um, but yeah, Iraq was my favorite because the people are so relational. Uh, and so um, hospitable. I lived with an 
Iraqi family. I knew my neighbors. I could go into their home. A Muslim family or Christian family? One, the wife was a Christian and the husband is yet to be a believer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you hear me saying zone. that, yeah. <laughs> He's on his way. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. I find, uh, I have found in the past, sharing the gospel, you know, in the streets of the United States can be a, a frustrating task. Uh-huh. I think I've changed significantly since those first attempts, which yeah. is an important part of it. But uh, what are some of the pitfalls that you've had? Um, doing evangelism and what are some of the triumphs what some of the things that really stand out to you is this is what God intended yes so is this anywhere yeah it yeah can be anywhere. anywhere yeah um I think the pitfalls in evangelism is fearing man that's mm. the biggest thing I don't think we can mess up evangelism I know we're like to be hard on ourselves sometimes like oh I didn't say it right or I didn't present the whole you know all the steps or I missed that critical question but I've heard of people getting radically saved over somebody fumbling over their words and being nervous you know and just saying like Jesus loves you or something like that (laughs) and then um, I think the obedience is what matters but I think what gets us caught up is the fear of man Mm. and even to this day I am really bold in sharing the gospel and it's attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit and there are still times that I can let my flesh get in and care Mm. what people think about me Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I consider dang I shouldn't you know I shouldn't get caught up in that what does that look like practically like you're in a coffee shop and God says go pray for this woman and you just don't want to do it or what is that like how do you know how do you know because i think one of my frustrations is that sometimes i think no that's just weird yes how do you discern between a quirky thought that's kind of annoying or or something that you just it's like one of those mental traps that satan can lead you into of like a guilt Mm -hmm. complex about it Mm -hmm. how do you discern between that and the holy spirit is leading me to do this thing right What I consider is Jesus said, go into all the world and share the gospel. So we're called to be witnesses. Mm. I don't think we could ever mess it up witnessing to someone. Mm -hmm. Like, trying is never a problem. Yeah. I'm like, even if you're not sure if it's God, for sure he commanded us to get in the witness stand. So it's okay, even if we might have missed it. But um, what gives me courage and what really propels me is if I know the Holy Spirit's like, Teresa, talk to that person. Like last night at dinner, literally last night, Mm. um, our waiter, you know, I just really felt something special about him. I felt like I needed to talk to him. And this is Teresa, you know, been an evangelist for a long time. I walked up to him and I go, are you a Christian? That's how I did it. Yeah. And he goes, he he goes, (laughs) yeah. And I go, well, Jesus loves you. And then I said, actually... I just knew I needed to talk to you, and I don't even know what to say. <laughs> and he said, a couple of months ago, I was actually in a coma after like oh. overdosing on drugs. He's an addict. And he said, um, but I woke up really peaceful. And I was able to connect him with one of my friends who lives in the city that can follow up with him and talk to him more. Wow. And so that's sometimes yeah. that's evangelism. Yeah. You know? And I yeah. got evangelism explosion in my mind. You know, right. I know how to do different tools, but... Yesterday it was, you know, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say to you, but I know God wants to talk to you. Yeah. So. Well, one of the reasons I do this podcast is because um, I don't believe the gospel, technically speaking, is yeah. simple. Yeah. It's actually, I, I think, you know, I call it the gospel for planet Earth because I think we've oftentimes 
seeing the gospel as basically this is the system to get into heaven yeah rather than this is the good news of the lord the new lord of the world that the world is a new place and that kind of is that's a detailed argument that's a you know working carefully through the scripture get pulling out the meaning of what jesus is really saying here and and that kind of thing yeah but and i i this is kind of my conclusion over um evangelism and i think that I would just like to bounce it off of you. Yeah. It seems to me the simple part is Jesus loves you. Yes. And I think that like, even if you're fumbling uh, through someone picks up on that. Like one time I, I was working for a couple and it's in a wealthy neighborhood. I was yeah. painting their house and the man was very ornery. And I I felt like he was uh, kind of rude to his wife mm. and I felt led and I did wait till the end of the job yeah. <laughs> after I got paid. Yeah. <laughs> I think no. I waited till after I got paid, but I, yeah. I just spoke. I felt like God really wanted me to speak to him about, I don't remember what I said, something about anger and, yeah. and uh, learning to cast your cares on the Lord. And mm. uh, I think being worried about money and stuff like that. He thanked me in a very polite kind of way. Mm. I felt like a total idiot, yeah. At, you know, afterwards, but there it was. I think exactly. he knew that. But what I didn't have anything I could gain out of that conversation, mm-hmm. and I, I just hope and trust that that's what he will take away from that. Is, exactly. Yeah, because I've had people in those kind of situations say uh, something to the effect of, "I didn't really need that, but I appreciate that you felt like you needed to do that, and you did it." <laughs> you know, yeah. they're like, "Okay, uh, I still feel like an idiot, but I, I don't feel bad." Right. You know? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've been to Afghanistan. Yes. Uh, you've been to many Muslim countries. You've been to Hindu countries. Yes. What are some of your experiences in the Muslim context? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you deal with fear when you deal with that, uh, when sharing the gospel with Muslims? Well, I'll explain how it started in my first Muslim nation was Afghanistan. This is 2007. I went there. I'd never been in a 99% Muslim nation. So the spiritual climate was much different Mm, than anything I'd ever felt. So I went so zealous. Like I had a full abaya on, head scarf, everything. Like, yeah, I'm going to Kabul, Afghanistan. (laughs) This is what's up. And I arrived and I immediately felt fear. Just Uh. fear, crippling fear. And so they had asked, like, we need a stable missionary, you know? And I and I had assured them. I had been a missionary for five years, and I was stable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I arrived that night, and I'm so full of fear that I'm knocking on their mom's, so it's grandma's door, at 9 o'clock and saying, hey, can you pray for me? And they began to pray for me. And then I was like, um, actually, can I sleep in the bed with you? And so then you got grandma and this Teresa. This was your host home? Host home. And this was a Christian family? Yes. So yeah. both both of them are just, just the grandma? Uh, they're all Christian. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, but I'm the stable missionary now sleeping in between grandma and the daughter, ah, you know? Okay. Right? And so that was the first night. That's awkward. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. And I was so full of fear. And so the next morning I woke up, felt pretty good. The next night, same thing. Mm. And so I had to go to the couple that I was living with and say, hey, you guys, I'm just full of fear. And can you please pray for me? I think sometimes we have to do that as yeah. Christians, just really call out to the body of Christ. Humble yourself. Humble ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here's stable missionary. Like, I'm not sure if I can stay. And I was thinking I wanted to return. I wanted to go back to America and leave. And so here I am being prayed for. That night I went to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and I spent time with the Lord. And I was worshiping. And the Lord said, do you care more about your safety or these people's salvation? And it was a turning point. 
And that's what I think um, fear is like perfect love will cast out fear. Mm. And so God had to give me that perspective uh, switch. And so I began to really care about the people of Afghanistan rather than my safety. Mm. And so then it was like done there. I was like, could not wait to evangelize. I wanted to hear people, see people hear the gospel. I had known someone that had been in prison for the gospel. I was doing the very same thing they were doing. And yet nothing ever happened to me. And if it would have, it would have been worth it, Mm. you know? Yeah. But that really eliminated fear in the Muslim context. And so I had an amazing time there. And then by the time I got to Iraq, there was no fear. Wow. Yeah. And so what I think is if I would have given into the fear of that first Muslim nation, now Muslims are my favorite to witness to. I know you can't have favorites, but Uh, like anyone (laughs) sharing the gospel, it's good for anyone to hear, but especially Muslims. Mm. And so if I would have given in to that fear in 2007, it would have changed the trajectory of my life. Right. I would have not wanted to ever go back to Muslim nations. It would have cut off. Like, it wouldn't have been like, Teresa, you stand before God in heaven, and he's like, you can't come in. But you would have missed out on the things I had for you. Right. And so that's why I think fear has to be aggressively looked at. And we got to get God's perspective, which is love. Yeah, fear and faith can't live in the same camp. No, exactly. Yeah, I can identify that our our first, our second attempt at street evangelism was at Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I was full of fear. Mm -hmm. And actually, we were walking to a ferry uh, because we were staying across the river. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm a homeschooled kid. Yeah. uh, Sheltered. Not that I didn't know what was in the world. I mean, I did. That was part of the reason I was full of fear. Yeah. You know, and uh, we're walking up and we hear all this music and this stomping and we're like, oh, great. It's already like party time on the ferry, but it actually was a group of Christians and they were worshiping and oh, they prayed wow. for us. So that was a really big, wow. a big moment for us just to help us to go forward. And yes. I do think it helps to take your mind off of what you fear and look at the prize uh-huh. and the prizes, um, people rescued from darkness. Exactly. You know, and yeah. So your life is about evangelism. Yes. Um, and that. I, from the way you live, the way you talk, that's the ultimate. Yes. Uh, but you're unique mm. as far as Christians go, mm-hmm. um, at least Western Christians. Mm-hmm. Why do you have that perspective and how can other people gain that perspective and should other people gain that perspective? Mm. Unique in the way of evangelism? Uh, unique in your passion to do it. Yeah. In your In your sold outness to the idea. Yeah. I've thought about what makes me like wired like this. And one thing I know is a gift of the Holy Spirit is evangelism. And so I'm like, okay, this is one of the, you know, this has to be from the Holy Spirit because it came on the day of my salvation. Mm. But then I think another thing God did was he used Tim Brown, the guy that shared the gospel with me to kind of set the precedent for what the rest of my life was going to be like. Like if somebody was willing to go to the awkward and uncomfortable with me and I know myself I know I became a new creation like there's no question in my mind I thought differently I felt differently I wanted to read the Bible like that was it was a Paul on the road to Damascus experience and it came I mean God used Tim Brown to dig and so now I go into evangelism and maybe that is it's a little bit of both it's a little bit of it's a gift from the Holy Spirit and it's an example you saw in a modern day Christian, you Mm. know, that propel me forward. Like 
people can say, oh, you shouldn't evangelize that way or, you know, and I'm like, nope, I know it worked, you know? Yes, it's different for every person, but I know for sure that him seemingly going to the awkward place past, Teresa, are you a Christian? Yes. Most people would stop there, but he wasn't willing to stop at a label Mm -hmm. that wasn't producing good fruit, you know? He was willing to keep going. And so for me, I think it's both um, that made me the way that I am. Mm. I do believe that missions is an overflow out of intimacy with Christ. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I make a non-negotiable is I spend time with Jesus every single morning. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like, am I going to brush my teeth today and spend time with the Lord? I don't even think about it anymore. I just spend time with them. Mm -hmm. And our times always look different. Just like if you hung out with somebody, it surely wouldn't be the same every single time. Right. And when you're in love with someone, you're going to talk about them. Like if you see a guy that just started dating a girl, you don't have to like muster up his courage to talk about his new girlfriend, you know, and the same with the girl with the guy, you don't have to pry it out of her to talk about Johnny. She's in love. She's going to talk about Johnny. Right. And so what I think is because the Lord literally is my everything. He's all I've gone to. Like, yeah, sometimes I've gone to people and I'm not, but, um, he has become my everything. So naturally from that, you're going to talk about him. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you for your inspiration and thank your you. story. Yeah. And uh, we'll put a link for the world race to below today's podcast. So if sure. someone wants to join in, cause you guys are, if you're not uh, ready yet to go ac- across the ocean, yes. they're starting <laughs> to do a world race America, or is yeah. that for only alumni? It's for only alumni at this point. So. Okay. So. But yeah, the world race is a good start to learn to leave everything and go into the nations. It's a, it's a awesome program that God uses to radically change people. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being with us, Teresa. And I'd love to have you on again okay. when you come through and you can share more of what's going on awesome. in the world. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Our theological word of the day is soteriology which is the doctrine of salvation, or the study of the doctrine of salvation. There are various soteriologies within the church, which is another way of saying there are various ways that people understand what it means to get saved and how that is accomplished. So are you learning anything about evangelism, or are you being inspired to do evangelistic work? I would love to hear how this podcast is helping you, how it's inspiring you or informing you. I'd also love to hear your experiences of evangelism. It might be something we'd even share on the podcast. So please check out the links below today's podcast and find out how you can get in touch with me. You can find my email address and send me an email. You can find everything you need to contact me at thegospelforplanetearth.com, but also in the links below today's podcast. While you're there, please take a minute to rate the podcast through whatever podcast app you listen to that helps other people find the podcast as it makes it easier to find on search engines. So at the end of Luke's gospel, as Jesus is arriving at the climax of his ministry, as he's coming to the place where he's going to explain what it's been about the whole time, he warns about disaster ahead of them. But there are some things missing from what we would expect Jesus to say in these last words before his crucifixion. Jesus doesn't explain how his death is going to appease God's wrath. Jesus doesn't make it a point of priority to make sure that the disciples understand that they can't earn their way into heaven through good works. 
Jesus doesn't tell his followers not to worry about their physical well-being or about losing their worldly possessions since it's all going to burn anyway. He doesn't say many of the things that we might think he should say as an evangelist, as a preacher of the gospel. So the question we're asking next week is, did Jesus understand the gospel? You might be glad to know Susie will be back in the studio with me to talk about that very question, and we look forward to being with you again next week on the Gospel for Planet Earth podcast.